Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to the Bill Press Show this Friday, July 27th, 2018. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press and so good to be back with all of you. I love being here on a Friday. You can review the whole week and talk, of course, about the week ahead. And we got lots to cover today, especially the Trump administration Meeting the uh, judge-imposed deadline for reuniting separated minors with their parents. They claim that they've met their obligation, but reports from the ground say that hundreds of children still remain separated. And many parents have been sent back to their home country without first reuniting with their children. We'll talk to Tom Jowitz of the Center for American Progress about the latest and uh, if there's a plan in place to get those children back with their parents. We'll also review all the political news of the day, including the latest story breaking overnight. Michael Cohn, President Trump's former personal attorney, claiming that the president knew about that now infamous Mo- uh, not Moscow meeting, but infamous meeting in Trump Tower. It was kind of a Moscow meeting. The Russians uh, back in 2016. We'll get to all of that today, but first. This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news here on a Friday. You're going to be out late tonight, Igor? I'm going to a lake house after this. So oh, this I will is be actually... relaxing. Okay. Make sure you stay up until about 1 a.m. tonight because it's going to be a very, very rare celestial double feature this evening. Number one, Mars is going to make its closest approach to Earth in about 15 years. Well, finally, I've been waiting. So you'll be able to see it up in the night sky. But not only that, not only that, (laughs) it is going to be the longest blood moon eclipse 
of this century. Is that like blood orange? Is that it's red? Is that what happens? That's yeah. That's where they. Yes, exactly. It's a red moon. A you know, I moon. love a good burnt orange color. It's my favorite color. It's a color. burnt sienna moon more than anything. But yes, uh, yes, yes. I I love the color. Just burnt so orange. much to see tonight. I have a whole wall in my living room that's burnt orange. Just a piece of all. It looks very good. I it, have a pair of skeptical. burnt orange pants that I've been wearing this summer. That I look at the look on your face. Horror. Well, I'm interested. It looks good with my. Color. When we see it each other socially, you can it looks put them good on. With my color. Okay. Anyway, look up in the sky tonight <laughs> if you're out late. The best time to see it here on the East Coast. Uh, astrologers say uh, astronomers, not astrologers. Astronomers. <laughs> maybe astrologists <laughs> agree. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Astronomers say it's going to be around 1 a.m. Uh, that we'll be able to see the best view of both Mars and the Blood Moon. I'll be up. I'll, I'm setting my alarm right now. Yeah, you should do it. So we've been talking and speculating about why Kimberly Guilfoyle Newsom, or Kimberly Guilfoyle, left Fox News. She used to be Kimberly Guilfoyle Newsom when she was married to Gavin Newsom. Now she's just Kimberly Guilfoyle, and she's dating Donald Trump Jr. Well, she left Fox News abruptly a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Well, it was now we know why, why? she left. According to uh, people that work there, six different sources that worked at Fox News says that she created a hostile work environment. She engaged in emotionally abusive behavior, and she showed colleagues personal photos of male genitalia and told them who the genitalia belonged to. Stop it, which really. Which is not something that you can or should do at work. That's Again, six, six different former co-workers came forward to talk about this talking about her inappropriate workplace behavior. They said the network could no longer tolerate it, and that is why she left. So I mean, it's amazing that they have tolerated it for so long. I was going to say, I mean, the things they have tolerated, this seems to sort of pale in comparison, but everybody was wondering, you know, maybe she was going to go work for the Trump administration, maybe she was going to go lead a PAC or something like that, but no. No, it turns out she's just uh, a very, very bad human being. Oh, my. Yeah. Ugh, that is disgusting. Pretty bad. This is the Bill Press Show. Igor Volsky sitting in for Bill Press on this Friday, July 27th, 2018. So good to be back with all of you on this Friday. We'll, of course, review the week that was, including the latest on the separated minors. Uh, the Trump administration claims it has met a court-imposed deadline to reunite the separated children with their families. Only we know that hundreds of children are still in limbo, and a good number of parents have been deported to their home countries without first being reunited with their kids. Lawyers for those families claim that they were pressured into agreeing to an expedited uh, expedited deportation process because they thought they would be reuniting with their children. But now uh, they're in their home country in Guatemala or in El Salvador, and their children are somewhere here in America. 
It's been an entirely chaotic process, stretching government resources, but also the resources of hundreds of hundreds of volunteers and dozens of nonprofits across the country who have really scrambled to house the children and to keep the children safe. We'll get the latest in all of that from Tom Jowitz. He's a vice president at the Center for American Progress. And also, of course, cover all of the political news of the week. And it's been a crazy week. Just last night, Peter, news broke that Michael Cohn, the president's former personal favorite lawyer, confidant, fixer, maybe even friend at one time, is now willing to tell Robert Mueller that President Donald Trump, despite repeated denials from him and from the White House, knew about the August 2016 meeting between a Russian lawyer with ties to the Kremlin and Don Jr. Uh, that is something he denied. That is something Don Jr. denied. Now, Michael Cohn, to be clear, says he doesn't have direct evidence that this meeting happened, but he will attest to being in the room when President Donald Trump told Don Jr. to go ahead and take that meeting. It's pretty stunning because I, I, I mean, mean but, but is anyone really surprised? I tweeted, I don't think anyone is. Really well, surprised I'm not surprised that. by the news that Donald Trump uh, uh, approved this meeting. But I, I have to say, I was a little skeptical that Michael Cohn would actually flip this hard on his buddy Donald Trump. I, I, I mean, look, he's one of these weird sort of like loyalty above all else guys, which is how well, Trump, apparently not. though. Which is, well, that's how he has been. Yeah. And then, which is kind of how Trump has been, right? Like, be loyal to me, and loyalty is a big, big thing. And and if he was actually facing a real, some real jail time, like he might maybe bite the bullet and take it, knowing that Donald Trump would take care of him. You know, but this... I, but it, it appears as though I mean, look, the releasing of that audio tape of Donald Trump discussing the payment to uh, Karen McDougal, cash, which we, which Check. We cash, cash. cash. <laughs> Like that, as Bill pointed out, that's all the proof you need that he is that he has flipped. I mean, he is going to cooperate. You know, he feels to me and sounds to me like a man who's very hurt by Trump's cold shoulder, by the cold shoulder of the Trump organization. You remember reports initially when his office was raided back in April of 2018 that the Trump organization had agreed to pay some amount uh, to lawyers in order to decide which documents were privileged and which were not so as to determine which of the documents can go to, to investigators and which have to stay with the lawyer. And then that turned into some kind of mess where they couldn't come to an agreement. And I think uh, Cohn was feeling like he was being gypped. And then, of course, the fact that the president uh, publicly turned against him, gave him the cold shoulder, called him just once uh, in this in this whole saga. Uh, and but so, also, I mean, look at how Donald Trump has treated people who have left his orbit to go do other things. Even Steve Bannon, right? Like he called he called Steve Bannon a White House staffer. <laughs> he just, like people that have worked with Donald Trump who have left the administration and gone on to do other things have not gotten any sort of support from Donald. So Trump. he should not be surprised that this. No, happened. no. But I he think thought that, he was special. No, but I think he. Yeah, he, I think he did think he was special, but I think he was surprised by it. I think I really do, because maybe he thought he was different or whatever. And when he did leave that orbit, maybe he expected more from Donald Trump, which I 
can't, which like I, like I don't, many people tell, across yeah. the country yeah, are yeah. quickly finding out yeah. that is a mistake. Yeah, we know. You who can he always is. bet on less, never bet on more yeah. with Donald Trump. By the way, you can follow us at BP Show at BP Show on Twitter. I'm at Igor Volsky on Twitter, and I want you to tweet at me. There's so many things to weigh in on this morning. Uh, you know, uh, the the first of which, uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, YouTube.com backslash the bill press show go ahead and hit subscribe by the way but if you're watching us you can weigh in on the new haircut which is okay. an extreme summer haircut that i accidentally accidentally uh got i gotta be honest first of all let me just say it looks great uh, well thank you it looks great thank you uh i assume i assumed you had done it for the summer because it looks very cooling yeah well, yeah. it is cool. But it was an accident. What it happened? It was an accident. So I was, I, I went, you know, I, I'm one of those people who waits till the very last second Same. and then I snap of like, I have to get a haircut yeah. right now. Yeah. And so I went and I found a walk-in place and I walked in and I Wait, sat, wait, 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 wait. First of all, you don't have a, a I have a regular. I have a regular person, but we're in a fight right now. I don't want to get into it. You got it. a fight with your hairdresser? We're in a fight. We're in a fight. Yeah. Oh, we're in a fight. no good. Although I texted him after this and was like, look what I did. <laughs> but I sit down in the chair, and I just wasn't clear in communicating what I wanted. I said I wanted it really tight, and next thing I knew, uh, it was skin tight, uh, which, you know, I think looks looks okay, but is so drastic and dramatic. Um, and, you know, I was concerned uh, how it was going to look and how it was going to look in, uh, in in some of the media pieces that I do. Uh, and it, I gotta say, has elicited a mixed reaction. Uh, some people uh, have asked me, "Is that thing alive on your head?" Oh, for instance, that's I've, not I've gotten nice. that. That's not. I've nice. gotten that. Uh, of course, from Fox News viewers is who that came from. Of course. Uh, but I want, but I want you to weigh in. I want you to get into my mentions because I uh, went on Tucker Carlson last night uh, for the first time in a while. Can I just um, say, first of all, that this might be this might be the first time that anybody's put a thirst trap out on air. Get up at my mentions. Tell me how how my hair looks. Well, just give me some honest feedback. I feel like you know the bill. I trust the Bill Press audience yeah. to to give me a sense of how they feel. Uh, at Gorvolsky at BP Show. Uh, but I I did Tucker's show last night, uh, which you know I hadn't done in a while. But the first time I went on with him, it was right before the March for Our Lives, uh, and you know a, a Tucker segment as I knew uh, really. Uh, lives in a different world than our own. Uh, it, it, there are d different facts, uh, and it's a, a, a different reality. And that segment with him was just him and I, and we were in the studio together. It was just so confrontational. Um, and, you know, I really felt like I, I was in a cage match, and I felt uncomfortable with that. And so I said, you know what, I don't think this is worth it. I, I don't think I'm going to do this again. I don't know. Um you know, I don't know who this is benefiting, if people are getting anything out of it. Uh, and so they asked me uh, back a couple of times, and sometimes I couldn't do it, and sometimes I thought, you know, I don't know if I want to do this again. But yesterday they wanted to talk about these, you've probably heard about these, Peter, uh, these um, extreme risk orders uh, that are now the law in 13 states, and that's a situation when if a person is in crisis and they have firearms, and those closest to them, their family, 
members, their spouses, or the police feel that, like they could be a danger to themselves or to their families, they could petition a judge to have those firearms removed. Uh, and uh, that's become law because in many cases of public shootings, in fact, 38 of the 63 mass shooters in the last 20 years have exhibited violent behavior. Um, and given that fact, and, and given the fact that the Gabby Giffords shooter, for instance, um, exhibited violent behavior and police tried to take guns away from him before he committed that shooting and couldn't, given the fact that the Parkland perpetrator also was reported multiple times to authorities, but there was no clear way for police to take his guns away. Um, given the fact that after Parkland, two weeks after Parkland, police used this kind of risk order to take guns away from an 18-year-old who was planning to shoot up a school. Um, Lest we forget, by the way, remember Donald Trump at his roundtable said he thinks we should just go take the guns and figure everything out later. There you go, yes. So, like, this is obviously a much more nuanced approach to that, but that is what the president called for. Yeah, and so that's what Tucker wanted to discuss, and I thought, well, maybe this is actually, this is a policy where uh, there could be some common ground for Republican governors support it uh, and have signed it into law. Uh, you know, police supports it, of course. It's a way to save law enforcement lives. Um, and so anyway, uh, here I am uh, doing Tucker. So a couple of things. The first thing is that I think uh, explains why this appearance went better than uh, than previous appearances was that he was remote. So he was out in Maine. I think he's on vacation. I, by the way, too, was in Maine two weeks ago and it was beautiful. So I understand the draw. Uh, uh, so I wasn't there in person with him. Um, and then I thought, you know, it was just a harder topic for him to demonize. Uh, and so I thought it was a better exchange, even though it, it was confrontational, of course. And what surprised me, Peter, is I thought that he had invited me on the program to talk about this because I run an organization called uh, Guns Down America, gunsdownamerica.org. Uh, that focuses on building an American future with fewer guns. And so I assume that his argument would be, well, Igor, aren't these orders just a slippery slope towards taking people's guns away? Isn't that what you want to do, take people's guns away? And so I had prepared for that answer. I had practiced that answer. Uh, and he never asked. We just... Uh we, we were just talking about this particular policy and going back and forth about whether or not it was a smart policy, but we never got into the question really? of the, what's the bigger picture here? What's the bigger goal? I think maybe he ran out of time. I don't know. Um, but so, you know, you guys can go ahead and check it out uh, if you want. It's probably on his website, uh, on the Fox News website. But it, uh, I think, by comparison uh, and by the Tucker standard, it was a fairly tame confrontational segment. I mean, we've gotten so used to seeing these weird statements made by Tucker on his show and these fights that he gets into where he tries to trigger the libs, his lib guest. Yeah. So that's I mean, out the, of character well, for him these days. Well, when I was on last time, he tried to confront me with a tweet from 2015. <laughs> uh, and then and that went awkwardly that's for great. him. That's great. No, that that's, that's really good him. journalism, yeah. man. But look, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, why do you do Fox? Why do you do Tucker? You know, I probably wouldn't do Hannity. I've done Hannity before. I've done Hannity before the 2016 election. I probably won't do him now. But uh, why do I do Tucker? 
it's, I, I think, correct to argue that the overwhelming um, number of people in the audience uh, are not going to agree with me, will never agree with me. I could make the most rational, fact-based argument, and they won't agree with me. Um, I think a small percentage watch the show because they're interested in hearing the other side or they're somewhere in the middle. And I think I want to reach those people. And those are also people who wouldn't naturally be following me, who wouldn't naturally uh, know me from social media or from wherever else. And then the third reason is I think that there's value in going into that kind of cage match because I think to, to some degree – it sharpens your own arguments and it makes you better, even if, again, sometimes, especially with Tucker, you're kind of in a different world and a bit of a different reality, I think. Um, but I think there's still there's still value in that. Um, and I also I'm, I'm also someone who doesn't like backing down, who yeah. sees a challenge. Oh, yeah, you're going to challenge me. You're going to make this difficult. I'm going to try and meet it. You know, we, we've had this conversation many, many times, especially during the Obama years, where a lot of progressives just said, like, I am not going on Fox News. I'm yeah. not going to go on yeah. Fox News, which is something I understand. Look, I mean, it is essentially propaganda. But if you have a point of view, you have to get outside of your bubble. Exactly. To, like, have any kind of difference. And, like, Fox News is not the perfect example of getting outside of your bubble because they have a bubble of their own, for sure. For sure. But like, if you believe it's a in different some, bubble, it's a di- completely <laughs> different, a completely different bubble on a completely different planet. But like, if you have a point of view that you that you believe in and you feel strongly about, like, you have to be able to defend that against people that don't agree with you. That's just that's what the that's business just, were, that's and that's how the, yeah. you push policy ideas through. That's how you build consensus. By the way, I should mention, and I didn't even. You know, I didn't even catch this when I was on air with him because, you know, when you're actually doing it, you 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 miss certain things because you're focusing on what you're going to say next and what you're supposed to respond to. He actually agreed with me that the I know your your head's my head as well. He agreed with me. Go back and watch it. He agreed with me that those these orders called ERPO, extreme risk protection orders, are effective in stopping mass shootings. I, I uh, brought up the Vermont example as I did just moments ago, and he agreed that in that case, it was effective. So there you go. You see, we're, we're building consensus uh, with Tucker and, and, and the good folks at Fox News. And by the way, also earlier that day, I did Fox Business about uh, the 3D printing technology that allows for these shadow guns. Do you know about this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, shadow yeah, guns yeah. Uh, with Charles Payne on Fox Business, who, you know, I didn't realize this, but I remembered Charles Payne, my very first TV hit in 2009, I believe it was, was with on healthcare, of course, because I started my career with healthcare, was with Charles Payne in 2009, and I had not done his show since. And yesterday was the first time in, what, nine, nine years. years. Uh, that I was back on with him. And so that was fun. And he's fun. He lets you talk. Do and it it's, again you know. in another nine years. See how it's going. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? I like that. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, so, uh, but a lot of comments there, uh, of course, about me uh, after the show being a lib and being an idiot and all kinds of anti-gay <laughs> stuff. I mean, and anti-Jewish stuff. I mean, the typical, typical trolley stuff. Yeah. But, but this time, and that happens every time I go on Fox News, but this time there's an overlay of what's going on with the hair, uh, is it alive? Oh, that's right. We, so, which, you know, I mean, really, the goal of these people, their president and his hair, I think this is at least better. This is at least better than the Trump hair. I mean, 
That's a low bar. Now. <laughs> Fine. But yes, your haircut is much better uh, than the president okay. of the United States. Thank haircut. you. I just really wanted to hear that. I really wanted to hear that. Uh, anyway, we got lots to cover, and I promise I'll stop talking uh, about my hair. It's just it's been it's been too much. Uh, but I want to briefly touch on the ongoing immigration issue that we're facing. Uh, uh, and that still hasn't been resolved. Uh, now, you'll remember, I'll just do a quick overview, set this up before we hear from, from my old colleague at CAF, Tom Jowitz, uh, that the president, um, a couple of months ago, issued the zero tolerance policy, which basically said that anybody who crosses the border and is apprehended is going to be uh, criminally tried, uh, and and deported. There would be a zero tolerance policy. Uh, and that really kicked into high gear in May when Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, announced uh, the policy formally and uh, said that if uh, children needed to be separated from their parents because children and parents can't be held in the same detention center and so they would have to be then separated if families come across together and the parents under this policy have to be detained uh, then so be it session said and so that really created a crisis that uh, sparked bipartisan outrage international outrage and before all was said and done about 3,000 children close to 3,000 children were separated from their parents. Uh, the president, bowing to some degree of pressure, issued an executive order that appeared to not do all that much, um, but at least maybe paved the way towards stopping these separations. And then shortly thereafter, a judge, pursuant to a lawsuit filed by the ACLU, uh, gave the government a deadline of reuniting all of the children by yesterday. Yesterday at midnight was the deadline for reuniting the children. And so the government, especially the Department of Homeland Security, which was responsible for housing these children, for taking care of these children, has really been scrambling to figure out how they're gonna do this. Because while the Trump administration announced the plan, and this is something that hardliner uh, immigration folks and, and a lot of the nativist groups and white supremacist groups had been pushing for a long time and had been pushing the administration to do. There was no real plan for A, what's going to happen to the children, B, what the process looks like from reuni for reuniting the children. Um, and all of that became clear in these last few days as really chaos reigned. Uh, it was uh, hard for authorities to identify where a specific child was. Uh, there was a lot of confusion about when certain children were going to be reunited with their parents, how and when. Um, authorities tried to put these children on planes to take them to their parents only at the last minute to be turned away. Uh, so just mass confusion and, of course, as 
as I've been saying, it really stretched the resources of volunteers on the ground, of nonprofits on the ground, and really displayed the chaotic nature of the Trump administration and the Trump government uh, really being unable to to deal with this crisis in any meaningful way. That, that was the thing that really bothered me from the get-go. Obviously, the plan to separate families is a nefarious yeah. plan and uh, not something that we should be doing, clearly. But also, the Trump administration does not really seem to be an organization that knows how to uh, dot the I's and cross the T's. No. They're not a real details-oriented organization. <laughs> to say the least. And so once you have effed this situation up, it's really hard to un-eff that situation, you know? Like, figuring out how to fix your gigantic screw-up uh, is always a lot harder than just doing the right thing to begin with, right? Which, yes, I know that we're never going to do the right thing to begin with, and that's sort yeah. of beside the point. But, like, getting this situation unscrewed up is going to take a level of organization and coordination that they are just not capable of. Yeah, I mean, clearly, uh, the biggest problem now seems to be that there's some number of adults uh, who have already been deported back home to their Central American nation, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, etc., and without their children. So there's no plan in place for understanding when these families could be reunited with their children. The children are somewhere in America, in a shelter somewhere in America, and the parents are now back home in um, in their home country. And lawyers for these parents are claiming that they were pressured, tricked into signing papers that would allow for expedited deportation because they believed that doing so would reunite them with their children faster. And these are people who haven't seen their children for months, who don't know where their children are, who as, you know, I, I'm not a parent, but I think Peter, if he was separated from his from his parents, from his, uh, from his children, yeah. would do anything and everything he possibly could to see him again. Um, and of course, the lawyers are also claiming that in many instances, uh, these uh, migrants and refugees didn't understand what they were signing, either because there were no translators available, um, they didn't understand the documents, uh, and many of the migrants, especially from Guatemala, don't speak Spanish. They speak a different dialect, and so you could imagine interpreters not being available uh, for them to, to explain all of those terms. So just a horrific situation um, an unclear resolution. We're going to talk to, again, Tom Jowitz, uh, who's the vice president for immigration policy at my old stomping ground, the Center for American Progress. And he'll really break down all of the work that immigration advocates have been doing. And we should maybe just take a moment to recognize the real tireless work that uh, uh, immigration advocates and volunteers on the ground have been doing around the clock to take care of these children uh, and to figure out the complicated logistics of what it actually looks like uh, to reunite 
children at one part of the country with parents in another part of a country in a completely chaotic environment where the government isn't telling you what's going on or when things are going to happen. There's a there's a This American Life episode from a couple of weeks ago where they, they follow uh, an immigration attorney, and she's trying to get some answers about a child that's uh, in detention in one of these uh, uh, metal cages that we're keeping children in now. And they follow her just to try and get an answer about where the parents might be. Have they been sent back home? Are they still in some sort of detention? What's going on? And it is one of the most frustrating things you'll ever hear because you hear just how impossible it is to navigate those waters. I mean, who do you call? You call mm-hmm. ICE. ICE tells you you got to call this person. This person tells you you got to call ICE. So, like, look, bureaucracy is all, like it's already tough enough sometimes, but in this particular environment with this particular administration and the way that they purposely confuse you and don't keep things in order and keep things so chaotic and disorganized, it's literally impossible to navigate. And, you know, not to even mention, but we should, the trauma that these children will face, in some cases, lifelong trauma. And you've read the stories about children reuniting with their parents, not recognizing their parents, not knowing who their parents are, asking for the uh, for the for the social worker who was with them in these facilities, just real heartbreaking stuff. We'll talk to Tom Jowitz coming up right after this. He's the vice president of immigration policy at the Center for American Bro- Progress. He'll break it all down for us. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press. You're watching The Bill Press Show. Stay with us. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. It's just that easy. Bill Press Show on your phone. Uh, on YouTube, on Twitter, at BP Show, at Igor Volsky. Give us a follow, and also be sure to follow our guest in studio, Tom Jowitz. He's the Vice President of Immigration Policy at the Center for American Progress, and he's on Twitter, at Tom Jowitz. A must-follow if you're following the immigration debate and also the crisis we're facing of separated children, children separated from their families. We'll get into that in just a moment. But Peter, yes, uh, comments from Twitter on maybe my hair. Well, look, I don't want to say that not everything is all about you, uh, but we did get some comments, first of all, on the immigration okay, and the fine. reunification <laughs> situation. <laughs> Joey says, can we stop pretending that this administration is capable of running this country? This is why uh, you are supposed to send smart and hardworking professionals to Washington and not some blowhard who cheats on his golf scores. Well, Good that's, point. That's not the only thing he cheats Good on. Good point. No, as we know. Uh, Jess says the Trump administration is responsible for creating this human tragedy of separating children from their parents. Now the administration and their lawyers are almost demanding praise in court yeah. for reuniting the families, which personally I find to be reprehensible. Also, Igor you did get some comments about yeah. your hair. Yeah, what do they say? John Davis says, Igor, you're a good-looking man. Thank I don't, you. I don't know if I want to read Thank the rest you. of this comment. Okay, fine. We'll do that later. We'll do that during break. I, I'm just going to read this. Okay, fine. I, I don't disagree with this. Uh-oh. Igor, John says, Igor, you're a good-looking man. Why would you make yourself look like that with such an extreme haircut? Uh, I That's told not, you it was a mistake. It's, it's, no, it's good-looking. It's a good-looking haircut. Didn't also, mean for this to happen. my man Romaine in Chicago yeah, Romaine. says, you're cute, Igor, you're cute. And yes, 
you can get into it with your barber. I've broken up with at least four in the last five years. Sometimes there's too much conflict to go on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm, you know, it's, you know, you're in a, you, you do have an intimate relationship with somebody who you see, you know, for men, it's like, what, at least once a month. I don't know what it is for you, Tom. But you sit there and you talk to them for at least an hour. And, you know, I go in there and I, and I update them on my life. He updates me on his life. And so it's a fairly intimate relationship. So, like, in any relationship, there could be problems. And so it's not, you know, inconceivable that I may have had a falling out with my barber. I it's that's a real thing. I had to find a new barber recently <laughs> because my old barber didn't know how to do beard trim. So I got to go to a new. Oh, barber. you trim that thing? <laughs> oh, oh, no, it's looking good. It's really looking good. No, it's looking good. I know he's about to cry. I'm gonna cry <laughs> on air, huh? <laughs> Tom Jowitz, vice president of immigration policy at the Center for American Progress, help us write this ship. Um, Tom, so yesterday was the deadline that the Trump administration had to meet a judge-imposed deadline to reunite children with their families. How did they do? Uh, well, it depends on who you're listening to, right? If you listen to the government, they did everything. They, they were fantastic. They were working 24-7. They're, they're applauding and cheering on their staff, um, and they say they totally met the deadline by reuniting every child who was eligible for to be reunited, essentially. Um, they were the ones who defined what eligibility is, right? If you actually look at the numbers, though, there were about, you know, according to their numbers, more than 2,500 kids were separated beginning from the moment they started this pilot mm -hmm. program last year until the moment they expanded it across the entire U.S.-Mexico border uh, several months ago. And when you look at how they did across that, there are still today more than 700 kids who have not been reunited with their parents. Because they're ineligible. Well, according to the government, they are ineligible. What does that mean? Um, it's a, it's, it's, it's a whole host of things that could, that, that could possibly mean. So the large majority of people who are supposedly ineligible for being reunited with their parents are children whose parents were already deported by the government, right? So the government sort of created this quote-unquote ineligibility by actually de deporting the parents. And one of the things that we've been learning in the, in, in the recent days, basically, is that you know, the large majority of these parents are reporting that they did not know what they were signing when they, they couldn't understand the, the documents. Their children. Yeah. They, you know, these are parents, parents who may not themselves be able to read or write. Right. The, lang the language may have been presented to them in a language they don't understand. There are many, many uh, uh, different languages that are that are indigenous to the region that you know were not presented to them. And so, you know, and they could have thought the country that, yeah, and they could have thought that by signing these papers, the they could have expedited the reunification. Yeah, and in some cases, that was the deal that was presented to them. You had parents who actually were being told, essentially, if you forfeit your right to request protection in this country, we will get you out of this detention facility now. We'll get you with your kid, and you guys can be re you know reunited together before being deported. So parents actually forfeited their right to seek protection in this country, and then were tricked at the last minute and not reunited with their child before being deported. Could you even could you even imagine how that must feel as you're about to be deported, you thought you were going to see your children and you realize you're not and you're being flown to back to a dangerous place that you risked your life to escape and your children are left in America. Yeah, and and, and a couple things about that. I mean, so years ago before I was the cab before I was on the hill um, there was a lawsuit that was filed about a practice that uh, that that ICE was, was was using when there were detainees who were being deported, who were on these flights, who were being you know being disruptive or didn't want to sit down in their their, their seat, didn't want to you know get their seatbelt on. There was a practice of forcibly injecting them with antipsychotic medications in order to subdue them. 
not by a doctor and not for any medically indicated purpose, but just to subdue them. Right. So there was a lawsuit. Really? What year was this? That was about 10 years ago or so. But importantly, everything comes back around again. If you look actually at some of the new uh, lawsuits and the new um, uh, enforcement actions filed in this California court about the treatment of some of these unaccompanied children who were placed in custody after being separated from their parents, there are similar allegations of forcible medication uh, that is contraindicated, that is not based upon any sort of medica- uh, medically necessary condition, that similarly involves sort of antipsychotic medications in order to subdue them because they are so distraught and so upset about what happened and the fact that they're still in custody. That is so unbelievable to me. There's, I mean, the, the, one of the things that I'll I've tell not you, even read this anywhere. You know, one of the things I'll tell you about the immigration space, and you know, we have these conversations internally occasionally, <coughs> is that the people who work in this space know how. Uh, d- sort of depraved the treatment of, of immigrant communities and immigrants in detention in particular has been for so long that it, it, it's hard to become to, to not be jaded. And so when you get one of these moments, and it very rarely happens, but one of these moments where it breaks through the national discussion and people who don't live in this space start to hear about it, you can then sort of see it anew and realize, wow, this is not normal. It's not normal that two-year-olds go to immigration court and don't have a lawyer and there's literally a judge sitting in the front of the room, and there's literally an attorney for the government seeking to deport them on the other at the other table, and they're literally reading them their rights and asking them to make admissions when they don't speak. I mean, that's that's crazy, but that's our reality. And it's you know, the truth. That's not that's not the Trump reality. Even that part is not the Trump reality. That's the reality that's been the case for years. The children who are now in this country without their parents because their parents have been deported without them. What happens to them now? So a few things. I mean, if nothing happens with respect to the parents, if the administration just, you know, does does nothing essentially to find these parents, if it finds the parents, but then, you know, doesn't actually take what is in its power, the government has the power to parole people into the country for a whole host of reasons. I mean, it's a very broad authority to parole from this country. So they can, if they locate these families, and if, you know, frankly, the, you know, the, the, uh, the nonprofit community and the advocacy community that's been doing so much work uh, with these families, if they find these families, they can parole them back as the country and give them an opportunity while being supervised to pursue relief uh, uh, and protection. But okay. assuming none of that happens, looking just at those kids, there are hundreds and hundreds of kids who are now in government custody. They're being held in a whole variety of shelters um, that run the gamut from being sort of like foster care placements up to secure lockups in juvenile facilities. Um, that are run by the Office of Refugee Resettlement or their contractors. Um, there is a legal requirement for the government to place them in the least restrictive setting appropriate for them. That's been something that this administration has had some trouble complying with. Uh, we actually uh, learned yesterday, you know, it was made public yesterday by Roque Planas, um, that the same person who at the Office of Refugee Resettlement uh, took those extraordinary measures to stop uh, that pregnant uh, teenager from being able to access her right to uh, seek an abortion while in custody, is also the person who has delegated to himself. He sort of has retained for himself the authority to individually sign off on every single child who is going to be transferred out of the most secure setting that the Office of Refugee Resettlement use, uses. And he is, generally speaking, not using that authority. So there are mm. hundreds of kids who remain locked up in the most secure settings because he has said, I'm the only person who will let them out, and he's just basically not looking over those cases. So that's where a number of those kids are. And it's in those facilities where we see abuses like those that are alleged in the recent enforcement actions, the forcible drugging, the use of restraint chairs, uh, physical, emotional, mental abuse, 
I mean, really horrible treatment of children, which is why I'll just say, yeah. you know, when you hear people talking about the Flores settlement, um, the Flores settlement is the thing that governs how migrant children are treated when they're in government custody. The reason that was created in the first place when the lawsuit was first filed decades ago was because children were being treated in a totally inhumane manner that was not consistent with their basic child welfare needs. And a lawsuit was filed. And after litigation, the government settled that case. And that lawsuit still applies today. Getting it enforced is another matter. So some number of children uh, were not able to be reunited with their parents because the parents were deemed ineligible because they did not pass background checks and have criminal history. So very, yeah, very small number the government is saying without any actual details yet, uh, certainly publicly, but I know the ACLU has been fighting and fighting and fighting to get a breakdown individually of these cases. But there are some number of these parents that the government says they're, they're not fit uh, custodians for these children, essentially, and so they can't place the children in their custody. Mm. Um, and then there are a couple. There, there are some families as well, parents as well, who are actually still in criminal custody. Um, unclear what, what exactly they're being charged with. They may have been prosecuted for the illegal entry or for the illegal entry after previously being removed, even though they may have entered the country in the process of seeking asylum. So there's there's a, there, there's a probably like six or seven different categories that fall into that ineligibility. The largest. A bulk of those are the parents who have been deported already. Yeah, but I think for that, that you know, the, the real question is, who is making this determination that these parents are not fit custodians for, to these children? And there certainly may be circumstances in which you can imagine a, a a parent would in fact place you know a very serious danger to a child, and we'd want the government at this stage, notwithstanding the fact that you know the separation itself was was part of an inhumane process, to be careful about mm -hmm. about that. But who's making those determinations? I think it's important that you have independent child welfare professionals who are actually looking into these situations and are validating this because, you know, just as I don't think there's any reason we should trust the government's accounting of the number of kids that it took from their parents and the number they, they've reunited, I don't think we should trust their judgments about whether or not these parents are fit custodians for these children. And then the families that have been reunited, uh, are they what kind of process are they in now because presumably they're now being held together as opposed to separately so it's a real it's a it's a it's a real mix but that's a great question so a lot of these people have been brought together as of you know yesterday or the day before yesterday the government is pushing uh, in court today even to be able to deport these families many of the families as quickly as possible within the next 24 48 hours even um, and there are individuals who have final orders of removal they may have signed and wait like as we said they waive mm -hmm. their right to pursue anything or they went through the process and they were found ineligible and the government wants to deport them as quickly as possible. So that's still possible. There are, there are still any still families who are being held in family detention facilities, these family internment camps that are run by, for the most part, private prison companies. There are others who have been released from custody and in many cases they're being held, so they're not being held, but they're, they're essentially, they've been provided, given to the custody of a lot of faith-based organizations, frankly, a lot of Catholic charities groups, Lutheran social services, that are providing sort of initial reception services for some of these reunited families. And then there's been a huge outpouring of support through, through the, 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 the uh, uh, Flights for Families program, which was, you know, it sprang up within a day or so, um, to help sort of reintegrate these families into our society for a minute and then fly them to a destination where they may have family or friends or some social support network that can help them access counsel. But the, the key question right now before the court that the courts can be deciding potentially as quickly as today is whether it wants to basically halt deportations of these reunited families, even for just a week, to provide them with the opportunity to talk to counsel and see what their options might be. I gotta say, Tom, I have been so impressed with all of the volunteers 
and the Incredible. direct service organizations that have helped make this only maybe a little bit better for these families. I mean, I feel like they've been working around the clock with these children, providing legal services to the families. The ACLU seems to be phenomenal in, in helping push the judge to make this decision, um, to reunite these families, to put a deadline uh, for the government to do that. So we should, I think, recognize their real incredible work in, in all of this. Yeah, I mean, taking a step back, I think it's where we started the conversation. The government is applauding itself for having met yeah. its lowered expectations, <laughs> right? after having created the problem in the first place. Right? That's how we should judge the government. The government created this entire mess. I think one of the one of the commenters that we, that we, you guys read before I came on um, was someone who said we should stop trusting that the Trump administration is capable of running the government in, in an efficient manner. I mean, there, there's definitely some truth to that. I absolutely think there are many people who just sort of don't know how government works. The same way they implemented the first Muslim ban and didn't even understand what it meant, didn't provide any guidance to people at airports and so we had chaos in the airports because the implementation just like literally didn't exist that's exactly what happened here as well there was there was no implementation there was no plan to track these children they once they separated these children and they put them in the custody of ORR the officer of refugee resettlement there was no plan in place to keep the records of these the, the separated families together so they could reunite them because I don't think they really contemplated reuniting them but I I think that's less a question of of capacity Right. And whether they are like just inept people who are just bad at running organizations and more that the people who are setting the agenda here and who are putting these policies in motion do not care. Yeah. Right. It does go back to yeah. Trump talking that, about people that, as that animals yeah. and treating them as, as in, inhuman. And I think I think genuinely, you know, the Trump administration, the top officials were caught by surprise by the public outrage about what's happening here, because in their minds, I genuinely think they believed Who's going to care? Why will the American public care if we separate a bunch of, you know, uh, kids from Central America from their parents? Like, they're not even human. No one's going to care about it. And so we don't need to do proper planning in place to figure out how to get out of this mess. Yeah. Let me ask you what may be a difficult question to answer. Sure. In the aftermath of the president's executive order, now that they've reunited these families, and I guess they're going to be keeping them together to some degree— what is the administration's new policy for dealing with people who come across the border? Still, still, still unclear. I think, but I will say, um, so people are there are still people being apprehended, right? Like even today, after the administration gave its executive order, there are people who are coming because the conditions in those three countries that are you know that that, that are that, that most of these folks come from haven't improved in the last month and a half. El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, and Honduras. Um, and actually, there were some really recent uh, uh, reports that uh, CNN got. Um, that talked about the State Department assessing conditions in two of those countries, Honduras and El Salvador, um, in connection with the administration's decision to end temporary protected status and potentially yes. deport hundreds of thousands of these folks back to those countries. And the State Department's assessment was very, very grim, essentially finding that State Department's own employees were telling the administration that ending these protections and deporting these people back to these countries will only further feed instability will feed into gang recruitment by MS-13 to strengthen the gang, will also subject American children to more danger from these gangs. But anyway, that's sort of a side point. Yeah. But I think it's important to think about that also because it makes it clear this administration is not trying to seek solutions to the problems that are generating what we're seeing here. They're actually feeding it. But anyway. Yeah, I um, mean, the no, there appears to be no discussion of that, how to solve these core problems. Or, no. or, an, or even a clear understanding about why these families are came coming in the, first, up, came in the first place because the sense you get from conservatives from Trump is that 
they are coming over here to get a free ride in America to use all of our social services, right. and we're supposed to just welcome them with open well, arms and to great, overrun our culture, of course. And that's, that's one of the great things. You, all, you, you, you simultaneously hear they're taking our jobs and they're here for public benefits. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, but the, 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 you know, to your question, though, what's happening now with these families, you know, there actually was a very strange moment in the House Appropriations Committee just a couple of days ago when they were marking up uh, at the full committee level the spending bill for Homeland Security uh, for the next fiscal year. And uh, a number of bipartisan amendments actually were adopted um, at that committee level, and one of them would uh, stand back up a family case management program that this administration ended last year. And what the family mm -hmm. case management program does is it was a program started by the Obama administration in the last couple of years that provided a way to sort of do like a supervised release for families while they're pursuing their asylum claims. And the government reports looked into it. It was 100%, 99% effective at ensuring people were complying with those requirements. Um, people had better access to counsel as part of the program. The administration last year ended it. Again, they're not looking for solutions. Um, bipartisan amendment in order to add that program back into the appropriations bill. And so what's happening now with these families, I think unclear. I think we're, we, should, we definitely should expect to see a significant ramp up in the use of detention camps for families. Um, there is a lawsuit about that, about how long you can hold children in custody in those camps. But essentially what the government, what, what, the, what the court said most recently is that although there is a limit on how long you can hold children in these unlicensed facilities, um, it's about 20 days or 20 so, days, yeah. parents can decide whether or not to assert their children's rights. And so what the administration has said they're planning to do essentially is give parents that choice. Well, here you are. You're in this facility. I hope you've enjoyed the last 19 days. We're at a point now where we've got to release your kid. So you, parent, get a choice. <clears throat> Do you want to allow us to uh, keep your kid in this facility where child welfare professionals tell us it's going to be damaging to your child? Or do you want to assert your child's rights, at which point we'll take your child away from you? Again, go back yeah. to separation again. Child welfare, child welfare professionals tell us that's going to hurt your kid as well. So I mean, parents are really giving this to get, are being given this Sophie's choice, and I think we're going to expect to see more and more of that in the weeks and months ahead. How has public <clears throat> opinion changed throughout the course of this crisis? You know, the president uh, is very skilled at changing the conversation by throwing another controversy out there. And so it has faded from the headlines. But certainly this president and his party believe that there's a certain political advantage to these stories and to talking about immigration. Uh, and so I'm curious about how uh, the coverage of this and, and specifically some of the horrific footage that we've seen of children in these cages, if that has uh, persuaded the public at large that this isn't America, that this doesn't reflect American values. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So like I said, th this is really the first moment in a long time in the immigration space that something has truly cut through and has provided a window for the American public into how our immigration system does or does not work. Um, and what they're seeing is really the immigration system at its absolute worst, a policy being implemented that no one previously has ever contemplated because it, it just is, is, is so so outside the realm of, of civil, yeah. you know. Yeah. We would never so think that an administration um, would do this, yeah. You know, the American public has responded uh, in a way that I think I would have expected them to respond um, very, very strongly against. There is strong, strong uh, bipartisan opposition across the board to this, and it's passionate opposition. Um, and that's why I think in some ways, and let me take a step back, I think the administration was caught flat-footed on how much opposition they'd get to the separation of, of children from their mm -hmm. parents. Um, and so that is real. That has happened. 
But I think we have to recognize that this is part of a much larger plan. Again, this is not a Neptune. They didn't step in this unintentionally. Oops. You're right. Yeah. They were absolutely trying to drive. This is part of you know sort of their 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 entire sort of you know the id right that's yep. driving uh, uh, Donald Trump's campaign. It's very much part of what they were thinking was going to be their GOTV strategy going into November. They were going to spend the entire summer. Stephen Miller called it the summer of chaos. They were going to spend the entire summer and into the fall talking about the borders out of control, gang members coming in, really trying to sort of appeal to people's fears and anxieties. And they put together a series of policies that people like Stephen Miller and Gene Hamilton, I mean, the real policy experts inside the administration on this stuff, would have wanted to achieve anyway, Jeff Sessions. So yes, the family separation stuff for now as a policy is done, but they've sort of taken a tactical retreat back to two other areas. One, I think we're going to see a a significant increase in the use of family incarceration camps, family detention camps, and they have simultaneously significantly undermined our asylum process and made mm, it far, yeah. far more different, difficult for any of these families or many other children like them or many other asylum seekers like them to get a fair shot at getting protection in this right, country. Come very, very quickly, what is this doing to the administration would argue that this kind of policy would deter people from cr coming across yeah. the border. Is that is this policy having that effect? Totally not, no. So we actually released a study, you can go to our website uh, at AmericanProgress.org, uh, just earlier this week by Tom Wong. He's a great professor at UC uh, San Diego, in which he looked basically at the last few years at both family separation and family detention, where we actually have yeah. a longer track record to look at. And it, has and it not does had not have any deterrent effect. All right, Tom, we're going to leave it there. Tom Jowitz is the vice president of immigration policy at the Center for American Progress. Do follow him on Twitter at Tom Jowitz and, of course, AmericanProgress.org. I'm Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press. We'll be back right after this. Cool. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. That's right, The Bill Press Show for this Friday, July 27th, 2018. Good morning, good morning. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press. In our second hour, we're going to talk about all the news of the day, including reports that Michael Cohn is ready to flip on his old boss, Donald Trump, and tell Robert Mueller that mm -hmm, Trump was in the room when Don Jr. told him about that meeting with the Russians uh, in Trump Tower before the meeting happened. Of course, contradicting Trump, his lawyers, and everyone else who claimed that the president had no idea that the Russians were trying to help him win the election. We'll get into all of that, but first... 
This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. We go to Huron, Ohio. Ohio. Where over the weekend, police responded to a call early uh, Sunday morning because a 50-meter super yacht was untied from the marina in Huron, Ohio. $40 million is how expensive this yacht is. Now, that sounds like kind of a sad story because someone untied the yacht and it I mean, drifted and away. As somebody who watches Below Deck on Bravo, I am devastated that well, the yacht would go. It sounds very untied. sad, but I, I have some breaking news. It's actually very funny because oh. that is a yacht that belongs to Betsy DeVos. Uh. Someone went to the marina and untied her $40 million super yacht and set it adrift out to sea. But... It did strike the dock and sustain about five thousand, between five thousand and ten thousand dollars worth of damage. But they do have the super yacht back under control, oh, back in the possession of God. the DeVos family. We can all family. play safely tonight. Yeah, I have to say, I don't <laughs> the feel bad about just it. Left my body. Don't you feel better about that? <laughs> don't you feel better about that? I'll tell you who's not having the best week ever. That is my buddy Alex Jones. Alex Jones. Oh. Earlier this week, he received a strike from YouTube, which means that you, you know, you get put in like a basically a timeout. It's like baseball. Box. There's three and you're out. I know exactly. Well, yesterday, uh, Facebook says that they have blocked him for 30 days. 30 days. They said that they have enforced a 30-day timeout after he was found to have violated. So Facebook's he can't community stream standard. live, right? But he, he can still post on his channel. He, he just can still stream. post. But it's, I think that he's he's not allowed to post videos, even even. See, here's reporting. what I don't understand: Why he has such a big following? Yeah. Why doesn't he just create his own player, and then be free of all that? Why are you giving him ideas to to, be, to get I out mean, there? I'm sure more he more? thought of this. I'm sure he thought of this. Are you sure of that? Well, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. But Facebook said. Uh, quote, our community standards make it clear that we prohibit content that encourages physical harm or attacking someone based on their religious affiliation or gender identity. I mean, it took them long enough. I, I, honestly, it really did. And Mark Zuckerberg has sort of recently defended the idea of letting white supremacists and racists have a platform on Facebook. But they found four videos to be in violation of its community standards. The videos have been taken down and he has been put in a 30 day time out. Also, uh, one other story, because we've talked about this a couple of times. You see more and more people, companies or cities, banning and eliminating plastic straws. Yes. Yesterday, the Walt Disney Company is the most recent to announce that by 2019, they will have gotten rid of all single-use plastic straws and plastic stirrers at all of their owned and operated locations around the globe. This means... Disneyland, Disney World, all of their hotels, things like that. They're getting rid of them and replacing them with more sustainable you know, I options think there'll like be paper a, straws. There'll be a day, Peter, when your grandchildren yeah. will look back at straws and be horrified that we did that to the environment. I really do, and I think that's a good thing. I'm drinking out of a... Oh, look, yeah, there you are. I don't feel great about it. I just want to be clear. I don't feel great about it. I don't feel great about it. So much guilt. But Dunkin' Donuts doesn't have a non-plastic straw option. I'm just not going to drink my iced coffee without a plastic. So are they going to make like hard metal or like or like a harder reuse or like It's like a paper. It's like a it's almost like a cardboard straw. Oh, okay. And then you just you just throw it away. All right. Well, that's good.
This is the Bill Press Show. Igor Volsky here for Bill Press on this Friday, July 27th, 2018. I'm looking on my phone because Donald Trump just tweeted. Why isn't he coming up here? Oh, here he is. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, tweeted in response to the story breaking last night that Michael Cohn, Michael Cohn is private lawyer, one-time confidant, and fixer, is willing to tell prosecutors and Robert Mueller that Donald Trump was well aware of the Trump Tower meetings with the Kremlin-connected lawyer before that meeting was to take place. That, of course, contradicts claims by the president, his lawyers, Don Jr., who, under oath, told uh, committees that the president, his father, did not know. Now, to be clear, Cohn says he has no direct evidence of this happening, but he is willing to assert it to prosecutors joining me now to discuss all of this and so much more is Stephen Spaulding. He's the Chief of Strategy and External Affairs at Common Cause. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks. On Twitter, by the way, at Common Cause. So let's look at how Trump is responding to this story. It broke on CNN uh, late last night. Michael Cohn, ready to tell uh, Robert Mueller that the president knew about the meeting ahead of time. He says, I did not know of the meeting with my son, Don Jr. Sounds to me like someone is trying to make up stories in order to get himself out of an unrelated jam. Taxi cabs, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) He even retained Bill and Crooked Hillary's lawyer, Gee, I wonder if they helped him make the choice. Hillary's behind all of this, I feel. At, you know? He goes he on. Says. This is tweet two. And by the way, these are lower lower caps, which is why I'm reading them at a, at a lower Thank tone you. of no, voice. Although not, with, with the screaming. erratic capitalization at times. Yeah, yeah the capitalization yeah, yeah. is strange. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, as I read it, I will point out which <laughs> words are capitalized. Here we go. He we goes also on. point out, by the way, when he misspells things. Oh, okay. okay. Well, my spelling is not better than his. And so that, oh, for me, will be okay, challenging. If you want to flag it directly, I, I, I won't take offense. But, you I know, look, as I tell people, English is my third language. So everyone calm down with the spelling. (laughs) All right. Tweet two from Donald Trump responding to the story last night that Michael Cohn will tell Mueller that Trump knew about the Russia meeting. Trump says the only collusion, capital C, with Russia was with the Democrats. So now they are looking at my tweets along with 53 million other people. (laughs) The rigged witch hunt continues. How stupid and unfair to our country, capital C, and to the fake news. I love the inflection here when the capitals pop up. <laughs> the, the fake news doesn't waste any time with dumb questions. No. And it just ends no. God, I don't know. What a cliffhanger. Oh, and then, oh, I read him wrong. I read, okay, but the point is, I read the second one first and the first one second. But you get, but you under, I, it's, it's my first time opening you know, Twitter. It was a series of three <laughs> tweets today. So on my ride over here, I have my phone set up to get the tweets, you know, in real time. Oh, just, that is. Why do you, you do just, that to you yourself? You have to stay on top of this, I right? I it's can't tough. You do get up that. But, you know, the first tweet was 42 minutes ago about, you know, he's, He's returned to Washington, but then he starts attacking Mueller. Then 12 minutes later, he says the only collusion was with the Democrats and Russia. 
you know, and then another eight minutes go by and now he starts, you know, denying that he knew anything about this meeting, which again, this meeting June 9th, I mean, he keeps saying no collusion, no collusion, no collusion, repeats it till he's blue in the face or whatever. And he's never blue. He's well, always well, <laughs> orange. He, until he's a deeper, fair. deeper shade of orange fair. in the face, I think. is Fair. Weird. Yeah. But, you know, these emails, recall the emails. I mean, it was plain as day. The email said, you know, we want to offer you, Don Jr., information, dirt on Hillary Clinton that is part of, you know, the Russian government's effort to help your father, period. And Don Jr. wrote back and said, I love it if what you say is true, especially if it's later in the summer. I mean, that was earlier in this whole saga. And we just have to remember that. I mean, that was an extraordinary set of emails. Don Jr. put them out there. And who knows? I mean, Michael Cohen, I think he is increasingly likely the uh, Rosetta Stone here. I mean, he is, in terms of Trump world, he knows a lot of what was going on. You heard from the audio tape that he released earlier this week. I mean, that was in the context of the election in September 2016. So that's a separate kind of proceeding. But he, he apparently has dozens, maybe a 100 recordings, uh, tapes. So we'll continue to see how this plays out. But um, I would not be surprised. I don't think anybody would be surprised if Trump had an inkling that this meeting was happening in his own office. So um, we'll see what happens. And people close to Trump at the time said it, 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 there's no way that Don Jr. took this meeting mm-hmm. without his father knowing about it. Now, I'm still stuck on you getting Trump push notifications to your phone. I know. I, I'm I, trying trying to let that go, <laughs> but I just can't imagine the stress and anxiety it causes. Well, I, I, you know what I did? Let me, t- let me tell yeah. you. I took the complete opposite approach. So- I went on vacation for the first time in a very long time two weeks ago, and I turned off all news notifications <laughs> for that week. And you know what? I haven't turned them back on. That's a good feeling. And I have felt so much better yeah. these last two weeks. So highly recommend. Maybe you'll try it for a couple I'll days. take it under. I will. <laughs> Sometimes on weekends advisement. I'll turn it off. Sometimes I'll turn it off. But, you know, you get them in real time and as the world turns. Well, so the Cohn story will unfold uh, in the coming days. Uh, He, as we know, released a video, uh, an audio recording, I should say, uh, earlier this week, uh, alleging uh, that it showed Donald Trump uh, knowing about the payoff they had made to the National Enquirer to keep a story silent of another affair Donald Trump was having that he'd previously denied. The tape uh, seems to suggest that Donald Trump, although it's hard to hear, uh, that Donald Trump urged Michael Cohn to make that payment to keep the story hush-hush in cash instead of check. So, <laughs> yeah, does it matter cash or check? It's like that's the he other knew thing. That like, there was a payment. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> I love that that was their defense is to cash. argue that no, he said no, not cash, not cash. Right, but like, who but cares? a payment. It's still a payment, right. yeah. Uh, I take either cash or check people, by the way, if you want to. <laughs> and Venmo. Um, but the man who is overseeing this investigation, we're talking, of course, about the special counsel, Robert Mueller, is Rod Rosenstein, who's the deputy attorney general in charge of the investigation after Attorney General Jeff Sessions recused himself. And Republicans, especially conservative Republicans, members of the Freedom Caucus, have been at war with Mr. Rosenstein, asking him for all sorts of documents, claiming that he was slow to respond to produce those documents. And several days ago, 
introducing articles of impeachment against Mr. Rosenstein. This, of course, has been part of a multi-front attack on the investigation in order to muddy the waters, suggest that there's some kind of political bias and impropriety going on so that when a final report is finally released, uh, Republican voters won't believe it. Uh, they ran into a roadblock yesterday with Speaker Paul Ryan, who seems to have grown some kind of spine over the last two days. Well, we'll see on that. I mean, yes. I mean, the House investigation has really been the one led by the Republicans in the House into uh, the Russia interference has just gone off the rails. It's been a circus. Devin Nunes has, I think, really abdicated his oath of office in the way that he's been running this and protecting Trump obstructing, interfering, however they can. And this was just another brick in the road. I mean, of that, again, that three-ring circus over there. I mean, impeachment resolutions to to use, to, to abuse that kind of power and to introduce that and to further confuse things, I think is just really, um, the word partisan, ridiculous stunt doesn't do it justice. I mean, that's essentially what it was. Of course, hours later, Jim Jordan says he's now going to run for uh, speaker, apparently, Jim Jordan, who was also denying claims that he may have known about sexual abuse when he was in Ohio at Ohio State. So the timing, this looks like I mean, some sort of partisan if stunt, there's but it's anything gross. that would well, there's lots of things that should push people to register to vote and yeah. ultimately vote. But to prevent this guy, Jim Jordan, who's been driving all of these attacks on Robert Mueller and who is now, as you point out, is under investigation for kind of turning the other cheek to these allegations at Ohio State. If you want to prevent this guy from becoming the next Speaker of the House, vote, vote, vote. Anyway, that's just the PSA. Continue. Well, and so sure. So that so they come out and they say, OK, now we want to impeach Rosenstein clearly to, again, obstruct, interfere, thwart the investigation. I don't know what they're covering for. I mean, our country was. Our elections, our democracy was attacked in and 2016. And continues to be attacked. Continues to be yeah. attacked. There's a troubling, you know, really disturbing Daily Beast story yesterday on Claire McCaskill's yeah. race that, you know, her campaign may be, you know, infiltrated, whatever, that, you know, Russian hackers are seeking ways to, to again interfere and sow all kinds of misinformation. Oh, so, and the, the, and, the, the well, McCaskill yeah. piece happened after he went to Missouri, right, to campaign against her after that hackers tried to infiltrate her campaign. The, very collusion-y, so I have why, to say. So why aren't our – yeah, so where is the House, the Senate? Why aren't they doing everything they can to bolster, you know, bolster our systems and instead trying to impeach the deputy attorney general, Mueller's boss – clearly an effort to cover up, I think, and again, cover up for the president. They are complicit in their uh, in a lot of the president's, mis you know, efforts to interfere, obstruct, attack on Twitter, as we saw this morning. It's just it's a mess. The good news is, I think the polls have shown this week that even uh, well, Americans were at large, but even Republicans were seeing an uptick in belief that, yes, our country was attacked, that Mueller should be able to continue uh, the investigation without obstruction and it, from the president and interference and that we have to let this play out because that's kind of the whole ball game right now. Um, the Senate and the House refused to set up an independent commission just to look at, you know, not even to get into issues of criminality per se, but just what do we need to do to bolster our systems? You know, five states still have voting machines that don't leave any paper record, for example, right? Um, that's just a basic backup that we should have. We should be bolstering our election security. We should be bolstering 
voter registration databases. We should be getting prepared for 2018 so that this doesn't happen again. Um, that's on the election security side, but then on the misinformation side, there's all kinds of solutions um, that I think some serious people in on the Hill, a couple Republicans, Democrats are looking at, but um, unfortunately we're just distracted by the sideshow. But the important thing is we need the Mueller investigation to proceed uh, and hopefully we'll get a report and um, we just need to we just need to be prepared to accept it and follow the evidence wherever it leads. Well, it is good news that Republicans and more Americans believe that uh, infiltration by the Russians took place and that the investigation should continue. But it's sad news that we're celebrating that Americans are now agreeing with basic facts. A absolutely. <laughs> Inch by inch. And it's still it's way too low. To yeah. be clear, the support yeah. is way too low. Um, but I think he's being cornered um, increasingly. And I think people saw the Helsinki summit. I mean, his numbers started to tank a little bit. But that, you know, ridiculous press conference that he gave, um, you know, I think he's he's justifiably gotten blowback on that. Of course, then he tries to whatever. I said would, should have said wouldn't, whatever. Um, people are seeing this play out. And, um, you know, the other thing this week, you know, Secretary of State Pompeo and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you saw the chairman, Bob Corker, really rake him over the coals on this. So there's some, I think we're seeing some accountability at the same time. Of course, this is after they got their tax cuts through and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Now suddenly Corker, they're starting course, to change retiring. their tune. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the other piece of accountability that could maybe be coming down the road uh, at some point are the emoluments lawsuits that are making their way through the courts uh, and a judge giving a green light uh, for at least one of those lawsuits to move forward. Uh, Stephen, give us a sense again of what the uh, central issue here is mm -hmm. in this case and what happened uh, this past week. Yeah, so the, the central issue is we've all a lot of nerds and well not just originally the issue of emoluments no, was kind of nerds, nerds. <laughs> emoluments is something that you know some law professors and maybe a couple law students writing their you know law review note would focus in on what is this thing the emoluments clause and now it's like on the front pages of the paper and we all know about this you know 18th century word emolument which you know is embedded in the constitution and says that uh people in offices of public trust including the president cannot accept emoluments from foreign governments or from state governments. So the whole debate is, well, what is an emolument? It's pretty clear that an emolument is, um, it is profit. Uh, it is a, um, it's things of value. It is gifts, essentially. That's what an emolument is. But the Trump team is arguing a, for a far narrower definition of basically cash bribes only. And that's how they're making the distinction that the profits that the Trump organization is making from foreign actors staying in their properties should not count uh, as an emolument. And a federal judge uh, rejected that argument um, this week. It's the first time a federal court has, has ruled on this and said an emolument is a profit gain or an advantage. And it doesn't matter that it's going to a business entity that the president you know, has an ownership interest in. Yes, he resigned as an officer, but he still is um, an owner of, in the three cases on the emoluments right now, the emoluments clause, the three cases are all about the Trump International Hotel here in Washington, D.C., you know, right in between the Capitol and the White House, right on Pennsylvania Avenue. You can see it all over the city. Um, Which, where I may have once had a drink. And, oh, man. All right. Well, <laughs> okay. 
We'll get, I remember when that was the post office pavilion and there was a food I mean, court it was just with like, like a, a Cinnabon or yeah. something. It was just there. a beer. I didn't yeah. do I anything should, fancy. I think we should point it's out like it's, it's well. not a good idea to go in there and pay money for a drink at the bar in the Trump Hotel. Notice I said pay money. So if you go in and you have a drink. Oh, no, no. Somebody paid for me. Oh, right. I did not buy okay. that. Oh, no. Right, to right. be clear. So either have somebody not. else pay for it or go get a drink and they just walk out. But see, but to me, when you visit. So I understand. I mean, that argument makes sense to me. I don't make it a habit to visit Trump properties around the world. It's not a tour I'm going on. Somebody, I mean, one of his supporters, I'm sure, did that. But, uh, you know, the hotel piece is like stuff he's actually good at. So, like, he should go back to doing that. Well, so, I, you know, I, it doesn't strike me as incredibly offensive. But I had a, a, a paid-for beer at the Trump Hotel here in D.C. And I thought, you know, it wasn't the worst experience of my life. But in this case, so, so, there's, so two of the cases have been brought by crew. Um, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. And the case yesterday, yeah, this case that uh, earlier this week the judge decided is the case that Crew is counsel to, brought by the state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. And they're making this point that foreign governments, Saudi Arabia, spent tens of thousands of dollars running out rooms. Um, Kuwait, the embassy of Kuwait, moved an event from another hotel to the Trump Hotel. Uh, it back in 2017. That was I the think Think Progress story, in, actually, like, if excellent. I remember correctly. Yeah. Brought in like $70 million. Of course, Trump is saying that he's going to donate all the, the Trump organization is going to donate the profits to the U.S. Treasury that they got from any foreign stays from foreign governments. We haven't seen any evidence of that. But the whole point is the judge is saying, no, it's not just about bribery. It's clearly not just about bribery because that is illegal under the impeachment clause. So it's broader than that. We're concerned about the appearance that foreign governments are going to gain access and influence by providing emoluments, gifts, profits, gains to the president of the United States, and that that's going to cloud his thinking on issues related to foreign policy. And lo and behold, I mean, it's not just the Trump Hotel, right? The Trump Organization got 40 trademarks approved out of China. The Trump, the Chinese National Bank rents floors in the Trump Tower in New York. So and he has properties all over the world. So this is a really important case, um, and it's moving forward. Judge found that they had standing a few months ago. Now they're saying it survived. It's called you know, the motion to dismiss. Mm -hmm. So now they're going to go to discovery, and all these business records are going to come out. Yeah, the um, discovery piece is really important absolutely. here because that could push both the business and Trump himself to hand over documents that would provide some greater detail on all of his financial entanglements. And then and also pending is this other lawsuit that Senator Blumenthal is the lead plaintiff on with 30 senators and like 160 members of the House. Um, they're suing that case is being brought with the Constitutional Accountability Center. And they're saying, well, the emoluments clause says actually a president can can accept emoluments provided that Congress has uh, authorized that. Oh. They're saying Congress never authorized it. We never voted on it. So that's moving forward, too. So, And then there's this other case that crew has brought um, with some local businesses. So they're all they're all moving forward. And um, this was a, it was a big deal this week to finally have a court define what emolument means. You know, and they went through, like, a bunch of dictionary definitions from the late 18th century, and it's very clear that it includes profit. Um, and the point was it was a flat ban on accepting emoluments so that you wouldn't even have to ask this question, well, was it cash for votes? Was it a was it a quid pro quo bribe? You know, did the president decide to lower a tariff or raise a tariff here because of a gift? We don't even have to get into that because it was just a flat ban. The concern was we want to curb corruption and its appearance. And so no emoluments unless Congress says you can accept them. And, yeah, we'll see what happens out of this discovery. I mean, the president has...
He refused to release his tax returns. But they're going to fight this, supposedly. They can still appeal this ruling. They will appeal it. They'll appeal it. Um, They'll appeal it, but... You know, this was a solid opinion. So, and I think the law. I just, I think it's real. It's really clear. So, um, as this advances, of course, we'll see what happens at the Supreme Court. Um, you know, if this were to ever yeah. work its way up there, given that you know the Brett Kavanaugh, you know, nomination is moving forward. But I think that's a ways away. Right now, it's discovery. So, yeah. You know, the the piece of this of all of these stories and the stories being of like kind of. All of his different legal troubles between the Michael Cohn piece yeah. and the Mueller piece and the Russia piece and the Somaliumans piece. I mean, he's fighting so many wars on so many different fronts. But what's surprising to me is that his standing with Republicans is still so high. It's still in the 80s, right, who support and approve of what he's doing. What is going on with these people? How is it possible that? This is constantly in the news. These are constantly problems for him and his supporters, his base, the Republican Party are just refusing to believe any of this stuff. Well, first of all, I mean, I think a few things. There's asymmetric polarization happening. Right. So people are identifying less and less with a political party. So what constitutes a Republican? I mean, among like mm. registered Republicans, Yes, his approval rating remains sky high, even though he's taken on all these positions that are anathema to historically where the Republican Party stood on Russia, on trade, on whatever. Um, and a lot of people have left the party. I think it's been a lot of, you know, elite leaders have left the party. I didn't um, leave the others, party. The but party just left said, me. You know, that's it. Yeah. I'm, sick of, I'm sick of parties. Pox on, the danger is it becomes pox on both your houses. I'm not going to participate. The whole thing's, you know, rigged. But... That 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 core base of support where he's in the high 80s is is a narrow portion of the electorate. Actually, and it's getting that's smaller. Like, right? That's right. He's losing parts, uh, demographic groups that have voted for him in the election in 2016. Yeah. And yeah. right now, self-identified narrow. Republicans, I believe they're roughly a quarter of the electorate. So, yeah, he's really popular. But that means three and four Americans you know, don't stand for this. The challenges and this has been coming up a lot lately. Um, look, the whole system privileges uh, very large white rural states and the electoral college privileges those states mm-hmm. I mean, he, we have to remind ourselves a majority of the country did not vote for this man um a majority every of the country did not did not morning. vote for you know the uh you look at the congress um those that are wielding the gavel do not have the majority support of the country yeah so um well you know we my organization a lot of organizations have urged looking at you know electoral college reform i mean that the the country has changed we've sorted ourselves differently um we've become you know national issues or national issues and so anyways he's just so his support among the republicans they they have out they have a lot of power because of built-in structural advantages even though they have less people yeah and claim the opposite right. all the time is that by the way just quickly is is that push to abolish the electoral college have you seen that uh pick up steam and support in the aftermath of this election i haven't you know i think that you know because i Bush haven't really court, heard people talk about it well i on electoral college i wouldn't i mean i think people put the elect there's been a number of pieces recently yeah. about the Senate, the way the Senate is situated, gerrymandering, the Electoral yeah. College, to say these are all the pieces where the minority overrules the majority. Um, there had been, you know, after Bush v. Gore, there had been a pretty concerted effort to move an interstate compact. I think Connecticut's the 
passed a resolution recently. A number of states have said, you know, we'll throw our electoral votes to the winner of the popular vote. At one point, Oklahoma was taking a really close look at that. Um, I mean, I think that the interstate compact is is the way to go. Um, if if we have another election where the person that gets the keys to the Oval Office is the person that won fewer votes, yeah. then I think maybe the third time's the charm. Gore, Trump, who knows, 2020. Um, then maybe I think we'll see some more organized around But I mean, that. at but some it's... point, you'd think that people would get fed up with the fact that you have uh, these politicians in power who represent a minority view, yet mm-hmm. they continue to be able to to push what they want and right. and kind of, you know, screw everybody else over. Yeah, at least that's the hope. But I think I think people are starting to pick up on that yeah. uh, more than more than before. So. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, you're seeing it with gerrymandering, too. I mean, there's like five states that will be voting. They'll have ballot initiatives on redistricting reform um, because, again, they're saying, wait a minute, the system it has those in power are essentially setting all the rules and entrenching themselves. Yeah. And and there's so nothing democratic about on. that. Right. Yeah. Stevens Paulding, he's the chief, 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 chief of strategy and external affairs with Common Cause on Twitter at Common Cause and, of course, at CommonCause.org. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. I'm Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press. We take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, it is the Bill Press Show coming to you live for this Friday, July 27th, 2018. I am Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press in our final half hour. We're going to talk about all of the politics of the day from this president from the White House. And of course, we'll continue discussing the revelations out last night from CNN that Michael Cohn is willing to tell Bob Mueller that the president knew in advance of the meeting in Trump Tower in the summer of 2016. And joining me now in the studio is Christopher? Ooh, uh, I just you just told me how to say it. Right, we I just forgot. have to say we just have to say really quickly. Igor is notorious. Oh, I'm so I, bad I don't at this. Mean, and my name this. is Igor Volsky. I should this should not be a problem. Igor is really bad I'm at names. So bad at names. I'm going to tell you a story in a second. Right after I try to tell your say your name, Christopher Catalago. Catalago. Yeah, that's good. He's the White House reporter for Politico. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at ccatalago, and of course. Politico.com. Christopher, A, I apologize. B, thank you for totally being here. Totally fine, yes. Yeah, uh, C, uh, we had your colleague, Gabe DiBenedetti, here. Mm-hmm. I think this, thank you. Thank just, you. It, it, now I know how to say it. This it. was a couple of years ago. He Got was it. here. It was my first time meeting him. Okay. As you can imagine, his last name was so difficult for me to <laughs> yeah. say. I butchered it so drastically. I had to write him an email after mm. just really apologizing for being so awful. Um, but ever since then, I know how to say it, and I will, by the end of the segment, also know how to say your name exactly. Uh, and, you know, you may not have this problem, but anytime I do anything, people are like, okay, how do you say your first name? How do you say your last name? And so I know the pain. I, just I know s- the pain I, of mispronunciation. I just want to say, uh, highlight of me, for, for me, of <laughs> yeah. what you've hosted, was the time that we had, formerly of the National Journal, Matt Vassilagombros. Oh, I that. I that's a, that's a I can one. never do Matt that. Matt Vassilagombros. I can never do that. Where is he now, by the way? Um, I'm not sure, actually. I can never. He took off to go hike the Pacific Crescent Trail. But, the, but he's, like, he's got another job took none of us with him. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that last name, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to attempt. There are some things, you know, but you know what I say? I say English is my third language. So if I can't pronounce these last names, you can't blame me. Right. It's my excuse for, it's for my excuse for why I can't spell, why I can't pronounce things. Anyway. Moving on, you have a piece in Politico titled Inside the Mission to Blow Up the 2020 Democratic Field. And it's about the America Rising PAC doing all kinds of opposition opposition research on the mm -hmm. 3,000 people who are going to be seeking the Democratic nomination in 2020. Uh, this is really happening under the radar. They're getting prepared for people like Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. Uh, to make a run for it. Uh, tell us more about this operation. So they're kind of hoping in some ways for a repeat of what Democrats saw in 2016. Um, you remember Marco Rubio. The, yeah. The, I, I don't know that he was quite ever a front runner, but the rising Republican star. I think star. they all were for like a day, They right? had their yeah. week in the sun, yeah. remember? Yeah, yeah. Going back to the the previous race, there was like even Herman Cain had a week. Oh, of, I remember. Uh, um, what is it? Nine, nine, nine. Is that what yeah. it was? Yeah. With the campaign manager smoking. You uh, remember that and, viral oh, ad? It's so funny you mentioned that. When I was watching the fireworks this past 4th of July, literally that song, I Am America, from that ad where the campaign manager <laughs> smoking that. was stuck in my head and I couldn't get it out wow. for hours. Yeah. I had to listen to it to get it out song. of my head. I Am America. Uh, classic. <laughs> anyway, um, continue. So, you know, they're hoping that this field uh, turns on each other and that we see a bloodbath. And right now, they're trying to sort of maximize the money they spend. So what you're seeing is they're going into these states where some of these potential 2020 Democrats are campaigning for it, maybe a uh, Democrat who's running for re-election for Senate. So they might go down to Florida or they might go, and they're sending trackers like you would and trying to capture um, town halls by folks like Kamala Harris, Elizabeth mm -hmm. Warren. Um, some of these things, it's interesting, oppo research is some of these things you might not find all that offensive. And I don't know necessarily who they're targeting. They're, they're the, the, the level of what might offend someone you know, is probably fairly low. And so, for instance, they had this video from a town hall of Elizabeth Warren talking about um, the repeal of Obamacare, or the effort to yeah. repeal Obamacare or the ACA. And she said, you know, she wanted to cut open or maybe we ought to as a sort of a, a quip. We ought, maybe we ought to cut open the bodies of Republicans to see if they have hearts. <laughs> and uh, so, of course, that was that was sort of ripped as a video and, and presented in this very violent yeah way that you know that, that look at this terrible thing and of course this is shopped around to local media and it's an interesting thing to write about because you're sort of getting behind the scenes of how they mm -hmm. pitch stories and we know you know tons of people are going to be pitched all kinds of things and they're going to try to get into local media and some of these early states and basically they're going to try to play the role of spoiler uh-huh well you know i spent a good portion of my career at think progress mm -hmm where I did some tracking of my own. Yes. Uh, especially in 2012, just as Paul Ryan was coming out with, I think it was his second budget. Mm -hmm. He was then the House budget chairman. And I spent a weekend in Wisconsin in his district where I think I attended eight uh, Paul Ryan town halls and like videoed some of them mm -hmm. and did this very similar thing. Our work at, at CAP and at, this, at uh, Think Progress was focused on policy, right? So mm -hmm. we were looking at 
how he talked about his budget and finding contradictions and finding interesting tensions. But of course, when you do it out of kind of raw, uh, that's something that's driven by raw electoral politics, you're looking for things just as you mentioned of cutting people up and getting there and and all of that. But I imagine this is going to provide quite a library uh, for President Trump uh, as he uh, as he, uh, you know, at, at, well, he's always running for re-election, um, but it could be a, a potent tool for yeah. Republicans really across the country. Well, think about it this way. Some of these Democrats had very different views than they have today, and I think they're trying to exploit that. You you have someone like uh, um, Senator Gillibrand. I knew who, you were going to go there. Probably who, the, the easiest target for very that. Very easy. And, yeah. and who... who um, uh, you know, had very different views in, on guns. Very and, different views and, on guns. And I think even immigration um, in some ways. And so uh, that one, I think we sometimes overestimate how much voters know about these senators, how much they know about these business people. Um, your casual voter out there. They but may do not... you think, you know, this is what's interesting, I think. I don't know if they'll care. Yeah, if exactly. Comes will they care? Their... In the era of Trump, will they care? Because if Trump is like how much more outrageous is cut your body and took take the heart out or whatever she said than what Trump says every single day? Or will Elizabeth Warren be held up to a different standard? But, you know, I, I also would like to point out, I, I think that politicians who think that they can get away with things because Trump can get away with them is misjudging. Yeah, I think it's a mistake. Yeah, I like I, I think Trump can get away with it because he's Trump. Not because Why? Like, what is... about him allows well, him to get away with something like that and not well, I mean I was gonna say Cory Booker, but there you see, you see that. But like, some... it's very clear. Well, I mean, but look, I mean, th there is an expectation of career politicians to sort of be a little more polished and have a message and all this type of stuff. But like, Donald Trump is not a politician, or has not been a politician for his entire life. He has a history of being brash and saying things that could get that rub people the wrong way, and that's just who he is. That's built into how we see Donald Trump. I don't. I can't think of a politician, another politician out there that has a similar uh, makeup, right? Certainly not Kirsten Gillibrand. We were talking about her. Like yeah. I, I, I think of her as a thoughtful politician. So, Christopher, do you think they'll be held? Democrats running in twenty twenty will be held to a different standard. I think it depends on their supporters, right? Yeah. I mean, the reason that Donald Trump can say the things he does is because, I mean, his supporters seem to rally around most of of what he says and does, and and it arguably in the primary in 2016, helped him gain support. I mean, he was sort of the guy, everyone else was playing this role mm. and, and you know, saying the things that you would expect them to say, or they were just waiting for him to implode, and he, it didn't happen, clearly. And that's another parallel with this. It's, you know, I do think there is a potential danger for um, Republicans trying to sort of play too cute in the Democratic primary because you know, you, you may end up with the candidate that can beat you. And that uh. was what happened, obviously, with uh, with Republicans and Democrats in 2016. We remember Hillary Clinton sort of um, and, and what her supporters were saying about wanting to draw Donald Trump out of that um, out of that field. Yeah. So. Right. You, know, right. you never know what you're going to get. But that's an interesting point you make about it really depends on who your audience is. Right. So if it doesn't matter for Trump's audience that he says all kinds of crazy things and they view it as entertaining and maybe uh, view it as somewhat, you know, as a kind of a tough guy and mm -hmm. shaking things up, uh, uh, Democrats and and the progressive audience may have different expectations. It's, I think, part of the reason why 
conservative talk radio and conservative TV has been so successful, that kind of like very dogmatic, I have an extreme opinion, I'm going to defend it without any nuance, that sells to that audience as we see from Fox News, from all of the other stations that are popping up online now, the, what is it, CRTV or something, which is the new conservative web channel that they have. Uh, and progressives have struggled really for decades to build up uh, a media presence uh, that is that has similar structures because maybe progressive audiences want to see more nuance. I mean, you even see it in the way that like if you compare maybe a Rachel Maddow show to a Hannity, Hannity is everything is black and white and Rachel spends you know, many, many minutes and segments and blocks finding nuance and things. Yeah, she spends many minutes building up to her point. Yes. Right? And <laughs> yeah, it just sort of exactly. comes out with it. Um, I, you know, I think that could be true. I think that the thing about this field and the thing about Donald Trump is he's not going to necessarily need um, a whole lot of help in picking off some of these folks or at least calling them out. We know he'll get the attention when he calls out yeah. Elizabeth Warren. We know he'll get it when he calls out... Um, Harris or Booker, whoever. Um, the thing about this is they're trying to do early on s stories about these folks and to define them mm -hmm. before out of the we, gate. Out of the gate. Yeah. Um, these, some of these people have been in politics for years, but not necessarily on the national scene as long. I, I take Senator Kamala Harris, obviously from California. She was um, uh, attorney general and before and it that must have minimal attorney. national name recognition I'd imagine yeah so when you're able to say you know just have a couple things potentially stick to them the other thing is when you talk about whether um, the 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 opposition research might work on Democrats and not on Donald Trump I mean part of it is they tried I mean look at all the ads oh. uh, on Donald <laughs> yes. Trump about him insulting you know various groups uh, the one that Democrats to this day that I talked to say may have had the most resonance with people was not any of the ones about him name calling mm -hmm. or the bluster. It was actually the one where there was a clip from David Letterman um, where he pre-beard. Uh, yeah, way pre-beard. Okay. This is this is this is an older clip where he's basically making fun of Donald Trump, pulling up his ties and saying, "Well, where where's this tie made?" and turning it around and saying, "Oh, that's made in China." Oh, that's fascinating. And so, there, you know, you look at what attacks worked on Donald Trump, this hypocrisy mm. one, this one, you know, he's doing this whole made in America thing now. So it'll just be interesting to see what people use, because the idea that his character is out there or, you know, he's brash or he's, you know, affiliates with whatever groups and stuff. I, you know, the, yeah. his I, supporters clearly don't care. He's, he has 88 percent of support from Republicans right now. Um, he's not running in any kind of contested primary, so they're going to have to try something on the other side. You know, the ad that sticks out in my mind from 2016 was that Hillary ad of young children watching a Donald Trump rally mm -hmm. and him saying all kinds of offensive things and the message of the ad being, do you want your children to have this in their leader? And clearly it may have resonated yeah, with me. Yeah. But it they uh, the people who voted for him, maybe that was baked into their perception and they thought, well, that might not be so great. But if this guy's going to come to D.C. and shake up politics, maybe that's what it takes ultimately. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Well, here's Donald Trump speaking of brash things that he says and can just get away with and get laughs. This is him in Illinois at a rally saying uh, that Obama 
wanted to go to war with North Korea. When I met with President Obama, it sounded like he was ready to go to war with North Korea. It sounded like he was ready to go to war. I said, did you ever speak to him? No. I said, wouldn't it be nice to at least speak? <laughs> I mean, First of all, by the way, they didn't happen. There's no way that happened. Never imagine happening. Yet it's just the latest example of him saying something crazy, it getting a lot of laughs, maybe getting some coverage on the cables and everybody moving on. And that's really, I think, one of one of his most successful communications tools. Right. Is that he can just switch attention move attention, shift attention from mm -hmm. certain stories by just saying something outrageous. And he's never held to account for saying any of these outrageous things because there's so many of them. How can you possibly keep up? Or he's held to account. And we go back to the point we made before. Uh, he's not necessarily paying a price yeah. because the people that are holding him to account are not the ones that are going to vote for him anyway. Right. And so he comes out and says something like this. Obviously, we know that that one of the things that Barack Obama did, according to all the reporting around it, was he thought and him and his administration thought that North Korea was like one of the biggest threats out there. You know, there was no talk of war, but there was he wanted uh, the Trump administration to take it as seriously as his administration mm -hmm. um, or as he, as he thought his administration yeah. did. Um, certainly, we look at so many examples over the last few weeks of Trump being able to flip the script. Oftentimes, it's through his press secretary, Sarah Sanders. We saw her come out in the in the middle of this uh, family separation um, sort of crisis in the country that was playing out on screens. Even Donald Trump said it made him uncomfortable. That's why he he backtracked on it um, and talking about being thrown out of the Red Hen uh, yeah. restaurant. And we see um, them do it just basically week after week um, where they're able to change the storyline. Just this week, everyone was talking about Putin and then they were talking about trade and of course you know folks in the white house press corps were talking about the uh the cnn uh, reporter cnn reporter yeah. who was uh, told not to attend who was the pool reporter don't yell your questions <laughs> yeah in the uh, in the yeah. oval so yeah. um there are there certainly are things that you know we're an easily easily um uh distracted society sometimes and um, the media landscape is so fragmented so there are a lot of ways that donald trump can take advantage of that the other thing he does is, frankly, um, he has backtracked on some of these issues that do kind of flip the script or change the story. I mean, he has not allowed these to go forward. He signed the executive order on the family separation. Now, of course, didn't immediately solve right. the issue. But, you know, he came back and said that uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia uh, were responsible for uh, for meddling in the 2016 election. So it, part of it is also the way that he's able to wiggle out of these things. So we know what his voters don't care about, which are the outrageous things that he says. But what, how much do we know about what they do care about? Is it those economic issues uh, that really sticks to them, like the David Letterman, are your ties made in China or are they made in America? Is that the core of his brand? And if you could chip that away, maybe you have a chance of getting at those. We voters. know that a lot of them. Um, especially in the Midwest right now, um, uh, farmers, manufacturers are nervous. We know that they're the contacting the White House. I'm the sure. tariffs yeah. uh, are huge. And um, the Trump administration came out with a $12 billion package, which is going out 
right before the midterm elections. What Ron Johnson called a Soviet-style package. And as a former Soviet, I agree. <laughs> um, the Trump administration, very, very quickly, we saw um, members of the cabinet come out yesterday and push back very strongly in, on this idea that it's, quote, a bailout, because, of course, that's the last thing yeah, of course. they would want it to be known as. How are they framing it? What are they calling um, it? They are saying that this is basically a program that already exists in the Department of, of Agriculture, that this is boosting that program, that they want to give assurances to farmers ahead of the planting season. They know that there's a lot of unrest and um, that this is a way, a, a sort of a temporary patch as his hardline stance on trade plays out and forces, of course, this is very mm -hmm. much from their perspective, mm -hmm. Um, are you know folks in Europe and then ultimately China to come to the table and negotiate and give America a better deal. And the thing I would say about supporters and and I have colleagues who were at the rallies yesterday and we, we wrote a story about it is um, there are folks even in targeted congressional districts who are giving him the benefit of the doubt for now, um, benefit of the doubt. And and I think one of the reasons is um, this big idea is what else are they going to do? You know, are they not? Who else are they going to turn yeah. to? I mean, that's, yeah. that's the question. And do you, you predict? I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you predict if we see the tariffs taking a toll, if they stop giving him the benefit of the doubt, if his numbers of support from Republicans go down in any way, do you think there is a possibility of a Republican challenger to him at all? I think what we saw after the second Supreme Court. Um, appointment in uh, in Brett Kavanaugh, yeah. uh, to me at least in the moment, and I think you know I, I, I still see it this way, really sort of proved that there's not a lot of oxygen for a Republican challenger. I mean, if like a Jeff Flake that, or someone like that. I mean, around the margins maybe, but yeah. I I just there's nothing in polling, there's nothing in sort of the fundraising world. It seems like there's this. Um, you know, potentially intellectual sort of very small wing of, you know, D.C. insiders and maybe some others who and there's also folks who have doubled down on on sort of taking Trump on. You think of a John Kasich or something. I mean, what else is he going to do? He's I put mean, himself in the position to be the anti-Trump guy and he's just got to continue. Yeah, Kasich doing would that, be, I guess, the most obvious. Kasich is, I, I've made a fool of myself in the past uh, on many different you things. You have? On uh, many different things. But I said back when John Huntsman ran for president and, and completely flamed out, I said, you know, in like 10 years time, this was, you know, nine years ago, in 10 years time, the Republicans are going to come to their senses and they're going to work with someone like a John Huntsman who's not a flamethrower, who's a lot more moderate and they will realize that you cannot win with a tea party or on the on the head of the ticket. And I was completely wrong. Here we have Donald Trump <laughs> as president now. So yeah, there are people like John Kasich out there or Jeff Flake. But if you look at just about every poll about how Donald Trump is doing among Republicans, it's always overwhelmingly positive overwhelmingly positive. I know that there are some never Trumpers out there and they're Republicans or conservatives and and they like to sort of beat their chests about how much they dislike Donald Trump, but the party loves Donald Trump. But loves Donald if Trump. If his if support from the Trump coalition who put him into power in 2016, if that's shrinking, 
don't those people have to go somewhere or do they just like sit out and and they don't vote? Because my sense was, yes, he has a strong base of support, but that that base is smaller now than it was in November of 2016. It may be smaller. I mean, I think we'll need to see. But the question is, could someone really beat him in a primary? The the, the question is, is, yeah, well, that's a different and, question. So you're that's right. a different one. Yeah. The, the other one you're asking is if he when he does ultimately or if he ultimately goes head to head against one of these Democrats we're talking about or maybe another Democrat has the constituency that voted for him in 2016 shrunk so much. Has he doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down so much on the base that some of these other Midwestern, um, uh, you know, some of the industry folks we were talking about farm you know these were people who were so solidly in his camp and i don't necessarily know that they would vote democratic or who they might vote for but do they just not vote for donald mm -hmm. trump and is he just is he doubling down so hard on the base and and not necessarily reaching these other folks now i think he would say no i mean he's he hasn't really pulled away from economic issues and um you know, I think these folks at the moment are giving him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. You know, the worry I hear uh, from progressives, from Democrats in terms of the elections in 2020 are that the fundamentals of the economy, <laughs> right, are like mm -hmm. not terrible, that we're seeing some degree of recovery from from the Obama years kind of carrying over. Uh, and that Trump is getting credit for that nationally, you see in polling, and that that's a real challenge for a Democrat who's going to go head to head with him, that all of the other stuff around Trump, all of the loud noise is just noise. But when people focus on their daily lives outside of that, on the economic factors, that the picture there doesn't look that bad. Is that also what, what you're hearing? I think they're looking at history and when you look at presidential elections um, of the past and someone running for a second term um, a lot of it has turned on the the strength of the economy and if things continue the way they're going uh, I don't know that that it certainly doesn't guarantee Donald Trump re-election but it really does help him the wind at his back in that on that issue the fact that you can attack him on all kinds of things but it might be harder yeah. to hit him on on the economy um, will really will be a challenge. Just, yeah. Christopher Cadlago, White House reporter for Politico, Politico.com. I'm Igor Volsky of Guns Down, GunsDownAmerica.org. Thanks so much for watching. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. This is The Bill Press Show.